You're listening to The Unspeakable Podcast with Megan Daum, now on Podcast One. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now for amazing savings. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. This mechanism of everyone's um, fighting ever more fiercely over smaller and smaller problems is fed by this ability to get to find examples of these problems around the world and feed them straight into your brain via 24-hour rolling news or social media. And so the so these two these two things feed back and forth on each other. You will never feel safe because it will always be possible to find something bad somewhere in the world and put that with sirens blaring and you know banner headlines on your screen in a few minutes after it happens. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest this week is science writer Tom Chivers. I invited Tom onto the show specifically because I wanted to talk about a recent piece of his, Are Twitter Trolls Mentally Ill? It appeared last month in the British online publication Unheard, where Tom is the science editor. The occasion of the piece was a response to a widely circulated statement by the celebrated author Chimamande Ngozi Adichie. That statement appeared on Adichie's website and talked about harassment and defamation she'd experienced from a former student and about how the language of empathy and self-care is now often repurposed as a cudgel. Tom expanded on some of these ideas, suggesting that mental health struggles and personality disorders have become engines of social media and that the kind of behavior that's rewarded on places like Twitter is sometimes the same behavior that's associated with diagnoses like borderline personality disorder. Reading this piece led me to Tom's other work, including his new book, How to Read Numbers, A Guide to Statistics in the News and Knowing When to Trust Them, which he co-wrote with his cousin, the economist David Chivers. That book is on a slightly different topic, but also very relevant to the issue of social media madness, and then it talks about how misperceptions of harm can turn people into catastrophists. Tom spoke with me about how that affects reporting and public messaging around all kinds of health and safety issues, including the COVID-19 pandemic. Tom Chivers, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you. You are a science writer and an author, and you are the science editor for the British publication Unheard. You have a new book out, which is about the way statistics are easily manipulated and how people can learn to read them better. And I want to talk about that. But as you know, the reason I invited you on was that I wanted to talk about a recent piece you wrote in Unheard called are Twitter trolls mentally ill? Yes, yes, which um, was, uh, it was quite the headline, but yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. I know you don't write the headlines. Uh, generally, we don't. Um, but uh, you, I, you know, you, I, you were reluctant to come on because you said you were a little worried about the response to the piece, um, and I totally understood that. But then I went back and looked at some of the other things you've written for Unheard, and there are things like. Uh, 
is there really a COVID mental health crisis? Why climate change is not the end of the world? What's the point of arguing with an idiot? And um, I wondered why you were more worried about talking about this piece than some of the other ones. Uh, okay. So, I mean, firstly, uh, I am worried about everything I write um, because I am okay. a coward. Um, but also, uh, I mean, I, actually, I should I should say the headline was feisty, but I was fine. You know, I didn't, I, they, I, I, they, it is true that journalists don't write their own headlines or rather columnists and reporters don't write their own headlines and other journalists write the headlines for them. Uh, but I also think there's a bit of a certain amount of cowardice in saying, I didn't write the headline, it's someone else's problem. I, in fact, the headline was put on top of my piece. I am fine with the headline. It was, it was feisty, I think it's fair to say, but it wasn't, you know, it's not a misrepresenting the piece. It is asking about whether or not there is a mental health issue on Twitter and other social media in which, you know, which drives a lot of the toxic discourse on there. Um, as for why that piece made me more nervous. I mean, so I was, no, I was very nervous about the, like the, the, like the climate change one that was, must be two or three years ago now, but I am, um, I was really nervous about that because I am instinctively someone who thinks that climate change is a real problem, right? I, I, I'm not merely instinctively. I, I genuinely think it is a real problem. I've looked into it. I've done, you know, I've been a science reporter and science writer for years now, and it, it, it is a real problem. The, what I was, what I thought was interesting was if you look at the IPCC's predictions and, you know, the scale at which they are, um, uh, they, they predict things they put, you know, they put in, it'll cause some number of millions of deaths a year, which is obviously terrible. But then, you know, it's a sort of, it was on a scale with things like smoking and stuff like that, which, which are huge societal problems, but they're not, you know, we don't talk about it ending the world. And I thought that was, it was worth making that clear to sort of put the context, the sort of scale of the problem. But I was nervous about that because I knew that people who understandably are worried about climate change would say, you know, you're belittling the problem, you're trying, and we should be trying to make it. And I, and I understood that. So I was nervous. In this case, I was really nervous because I think, firstly, is a risk of it sounding like you are belittling mental health problems, blaming people for mental health problems. There, there was a risk that it would um, sort of uh, pathologize just normal bad behavior and all these things. Uh, and I was worried about that. But, you know, I was also just worried that it would, that, it would a lot of they make a lot of people incredibly angry and come for me on Twitter all the time, and and I I don't like being <laughs> shouted out on Twitter, right? That's 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 no fun. Um, so yeah, I, I though that was why I, I thought like if you're literally saying a lot of the angriest people on Twitter have are, are you know are often driven by certain um, mental health conditions, personality disorders, then you are sort of at risk of putting your hand in the blender and saying, look, everyone, I'm calling you. A, you know, I'm calling you mentally ill, and that and that that struck yes. me as dangerous, you know, or at least right. potentially it's attention, attention, everybody, yeah, uh, who was going to go after me anyway. Here's a reason to go after me. Exactly, yeah, I yeah. Think it's a self fulfilling prophecy. But I just, I think it's so. Um, it's I have felt for so long that so much of social media is being driven by a kind of baseline mental illness. It's like so many of the people who are most successful on social media have that success because of a certain instability. So I think I told you my pinned tweet since yes. 2018 has been Twitter where personality disorders become careers. Yeah. And I think there's, sorry, I think I've just cut you off in the middle of a sentence there. No, Karen. you didn't. No, I, I, wanted, I wanted you to just take a moment and <laughs> yeah, <to laughs> I want you to respond the, to that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, no, yeah. So, so I think it's, I mean, like, I, again, I, well, um, I don't want to sound like I'm a, you know, I'm a mental health professional myself or anything. I've spoken, I've written a lot about uh, psychology and psychiatry and uh, mental health over the years, and I'm not completely without insight into it, but I'm not a professional. Um, but I do think there is definitely some, you know, there's an intuitively obvious way in which people, you know, people who are the most likely to be really aggressive and, and, uh, and on Twitter and, sh and say, and, you know, go after political opponents and things in the most dramatic ways, get cheered on the most. and that is, I think there is so 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 the sort of behaviour that that, that, uh, that I that I you know sort of behaviour that most of us in our daily lives would consider unstable, I suppose, is a way of describing it, is often rewarded on Twitter. So you know, if you start shouting at people on the street, that's not rewarded, but on Twitter and other social media, often it often it is. And I think that is, it ha yeah. So the sort of person who is most likely to do that is, I argue, uh, often um, the sort of person who has personality issues or mental health issues of some description and then then they are encouraged in it by the sort of 
incentive structure, you know, the reward structure of Twitter, and in that they when someone and you, when you go after someone, you know, if you're if you're in a in a broadly left leaning circle and you heavily go after someone on the right or vice versa, and you do it in a really aggressive way, then you get cheered on by partisans on whatever side, and that is you know that incentivizes and rewards these sort of behaviors that we would not really encourage elsewhere in life would we so i think i think that's i think you're right there isn't there it is twitter is a sort of way of does have a tendency to sort of magnify these things the piece came in response to a kerfuffle over a post from the writer chimamanda ngazi andiche uh and she wrote about um some students one in particular who went from worshiping her to demonizing her and then trolling her as transphobic. It was a whole long saga. She she wrote a post about this and the post was called It Is Obscene. Uh, is that what motivated you to write the piece? Did you read her post and, and have a particular I, I response read. to it? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's something that's been on my mind before. Um, but it did, I did read the piece. It was as you'd expect, a beautifully written piece. She is a wonderful writer. Um, it didn't talk about any sort, you know, it just, it just, it didn't identify anybody. It didn't um, talk, speculate at all about anyone's mental health issues. It just said, this is really awful way, you know, that, that showed that I, I met these people in person and, and they were really polite and kind to me and they, and they were on my workshop and we, I tried to help them with their careers. And then uh, when she said some stuff that was labeled by, labeled transphobic by, um, you know, I, I don't know if you remember the whole thing, but she said on a Channel Four interview that when she was asked if trans women are women, she said, "I think trans women are trans women," and you know, without getting into the whole argument there, just you know, that that was not deemed adequate uh, to right. in, in, as a response. And then, apparently, these two people who with whom she had this in person relationship uh, started calling her transphobic, and one of them said that they needed to. Um, I hope she hoped people would pick up machetes, I think was the line, which is pretty yes. remarkable. Um, Especially because they said that her words did literal violence. Yes, yes, exactly. So literal violence is saying what she said, but picking up machetes is supposed to be interpreted as a kind of just metaphor or yeah. kind of vernacular of the medium. Yeah, you'd assume. I mean, I, I assume, I say in the piece, I assume that is that she's not literally calling for machete violence. It is, I, I assume in Nigerian, it's, this was all on Nigerian, uh, between Nigerian writers on Twitter and Nigerian writers. Um, so so I, I guess there's a sort of cultural signifier about the use of machetes there, which would be equivalent to, you know, pick up, you know, when a right-wing uh, American conservative saying pick up guns to defend might not mean it in a literal sense, you know, but, you mm-hmm. know, but I reach for my pistol type. Um, Oh God, that's not American conservatives. That's totally other people. Um, but yeah, the, but, uh, that's all Americans <laughs> yeah, pretty but, soon. Uh, yeah. But the, um, the, uh, yeah, the, re- the way I reached my pistol is, is, was, uh, a Nazi. So I feel a bit bad for comparing, making that comparison with anyone. So that was, <laughs> uh, that don't, don't, uh, don't, I didn't mean that anyway. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, um, yeah, so there's the, this, but the, in the Chimamanda piece, she didn't identify them, but they were identifiable. There was a, there were a couple of lines that you could, if you were like me, a bit of a nerd, directly take out, put them into Google, and find that person. You know, if you wanted to, and um, and then you find that person on Twitter because uh, I'm nosy and that sort of thing I do. And you and it, 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 I was unsurprised to look back through the person's Twitter account and found that they referred to themselves as having dissociative. Um, uh, what's the phrase? Uh, Identity disorder. Yeah, that's the one. Dissociative identity disorder. Thank you. Uh, which you know um, that means they have multiple personalities within one body. Refer to themselves as a system of personalities and so on. Um, and then you know uh, this person also. Um, uh, well, sorry. Or rather, DRD is often co- uh, sort of uh, accompanies other disorders like BPD, but borderline personality disorder. And both of these things have. Um, Various symptoms such as splitting, which is you know when um, uh, you, you uh, something is either brilliant or it's terrible. You know they're, they're on the NHS website, and I, I will um, I'll get the quote if I can. You know that either a relationship is perfect and that person is wonderful, or the relationship is doomed and that person is terrible. You know the the um, any little victory makes everything wonderful. Any little defeat makes you suicidal and 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 incredibly unhappy. And you and it's very hard to sort of maintain a stable opinion about things, including yourself. You know, and that struck me as very 
relevant to what was happening here. You know, that, that struck me as, um, a way of describing like you know so so the, she'd obviously been a hero worshiper or, or this per- rather i think the person in question uses they pronouns and i'll try to stick to that apologies if i miss it up but but um they they describe um uh you know they, they were obviously hero worshippers of chomanda early on um this thing happened uh which felt she felt they felt was a an um insufficiently uh pro-trans was transphobic and so then they become uh, they just think she's uh, that the, uh, Jamamanda is the devil, is the worst person in the world. Right. And I felt very, you know, in in keeping with the um, the idea. And you know, I I don't again. I don't. There's this, there's this thing I just mentioned in the piece. So there's there's an idea in psychology and psychiatry called the Goldwater Rule, which is that you shouldn't diagnose people from afar. You know, because yeah. like you go and say. Uh, well, originally from Barry Goldwater being that those are psychologists saying he's not fit to be president, he's mentally unwell and he obviously and understandably sued the hell out of them, which, you know, right. totally, totally reasonable thing to do. But then um, I felt, I feel that this is in this particular instance, it was legitimate to do it because she her, or the person they have uh, diagnosed themselves publicly on Twitter and it's not, you know, me doing it from afar. So I felt it was legitimate, but also it explains a lot was my thinking. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting the way this borderline personality disorder characteristic of this kind of all or nothing stakes, right? So mm. somebody is either the greatest person ever or the worst person ever. Um, and that kind of, um, that kind of approach to your relationships really maps on pretty directly to, to the, the kind of just tone and rhetoric of social media, especially Twitter and actually all media, right? The way journalism is framed now, like this is either the most dangerous thing ever or, or actually, or actually in, in the case of news, it's either the worst thing ever or we're not going to report it at all. But like, let's just let's stick for stick to Twitter for the moment. Like either this is, you know, the most brilliant thing I've ever read, the most genius person, you know, I feel seen. I, I, this is everything this slayed me or this is garbage. This is trash. Uh, you know, I, I can't, I can't go on. Like, it's just completely, uh, it's just completely bipolar, literally. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it is certainly polarization is a thing, isn't it? The, um, but the, um, although it is important, I should stress to be, to make it clear the borderline personality disorder and bipolar. No, exactly. Are two Not different the same things, thing. But they, right. I, I regularly get, um, Say, say one when I'm in the other because they have, because the because of the BPD aspect uh, um, aspect or you know so that is confusing. Um, uh, yes, and I mean, funnily enough, I was tweeting last night because the UK has just announced that it's going to um, end almost all restrictions on you know wearing masks and uh, going to shops and bubbles and things in later this month. And there were people incredibly sure this is a terrible idea and people incredibly sure, you know, obviously this is, you know, our, you know, our freedom has been curtailed, you know, uh, and, and, and I, I took, I took it upon myself to tweet, look, I don't have strong opinions about this. I, um, (laughs) everyone has strong opinions. I used all caps. Well, exactly. Yeah. I don't know why we're shouting. Um, (laughs) no, uh, it was, um, I said, you know, the thing about Twitter is that on the whole, People don't with strong opinions don't tweet, and people with strong opinions do, and so Twitter, and I think the world, right? But you know, this is not this is maybe it's most mostly the case in Twitter because it's so immediate and so there. But the you know, the um, the media, the world, just in, you know, people in general are more likely to express that their strong opinions and their than their weakly held, their lightly held ones or their uncertain ones, and that means that the world and especially Twitter, it fills up with the strongest opinions and the, and the, and the, and so it gives this disproportionate idea that the world is full of people who really, are really sure of what they're talking about and are definitely confident. Well, actually you're just, you're just seeing the, 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 percent, the you know, the, that small percentage of opinions, which are strongly held by people with strong opinions who like to shout about it. Right. And I felt it was important to say, no, actually there is a, um, you know, I, I, I do not have, you know, I, I felt I should sort of try and sway it back the other way a bit by saying, look, I don't have strong opinions on this. I bet a lot of you don't. Um, uh, so to my slight surprise, it went quite viral, actually, um, uh, mm. which, which, you know, because I think a lot of people do think this. But yes, I think, uh, so I, I'm i not sure. I, I think I've just gone on a big waffle about nothing in particular for ages. But the, um, the uh, this links in 
in my mind to what we were talking about because I think the sort of people who have very, very strong opinions about any topic are the sort of people who are, have this cognitive lightness was the way that we describe it in the piece. Yes. The sort of tendency to believe things very, very strongly and powerfully but easily changing. And that is a, a, a um, you know, I'm sure lots of people are, have, have that uh, approach to things, but uh, it is certainly uh, indicative of or uh, an indicator, yeah, indicative of BPD, among other things, that you can sort of hold these opinions incredibly powerfully and then just at the drop of a hat, drop, you know, switch around and have have a totally other opposite opinion. So I, I think there is a Twitter again amplifies and encourages that sort of mechanism and is probably the the the, 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 the personality conditions tie themselves into Twitter's way of uh, incentivizing things an awful lot. I thought that idea of being cognitively light, like having a cognitive lightness, was really sort of profound. You you quote from a piece in a psychiatry journal that that talked about this idea. And it's it's a great way of looking at it because you can imagine people being sort of blown around kind of by the world. Like, you know, I, I think we all know people like this. They're sort of so it's exactly as you described, like, you know, something that something not so great happens to them and it's the worst thing ever and something good happens and it's the best thing ever. Um, and so there is, there is value to being more, to having more ballast kind of in your, in your personality. On the other hand, there's such a thing as being too grounded, right? Too rigid. Like, so I guess the question is like, how do you sort of balance those two things? Yeah. Oh, I mean, uh, you know, can, can you, can, to what extent can you change your personality to be more like how you want your personality to be? And it, probably the answer is not all that much, but the, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to, like, I tend to think of myself, for instance, as being quite like stolid and these sort of things like, like, but good things happen and I'm pleased and bad things happen and I'm sad, but I don't like, you know, uh, 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 generally speaking, I, I go to, I go to bed in the same mood every day and I'm not like, you know, I'm not, I don't have particular extremes of emotion, but yeah, that wouldn't, you know, that I, I, I quite like that because it makes my life stable and manageable, but it does mean I don't ever have, you know, thrilling bursts of joy in the same way that someone who, who, who'd be lighter and more easily blown around by. I don't, I don't want to say that I have, or there is a right level of, um, if we're going to extend the metaphor, you know, carry on with the metaphor, uh, cognitive weight to have, but, uh, but like anything else, I guess, you know, um, BPD and all many of these, what we call personality disorders are arbitrary cutoffs for normal personality traits. So, you know, um, autism, I, you know, everyone has a difference between systematizing and uh, the other thing. Brain, I can't remember what's the other <laughs> systematizing. You know, so they're, they're all if if someone goes too far, if someone is at very the very extreme end of a normal distribution of personalities, we we draw a line at you know, if you score above sixty five on this on this questionnaire, we call it a personality disorder instead of just saying you know you are quite you have you have a strong personality type. Someone in the, my emails mm. afterwards was saying you know, if someone acts like a complete jerk. Um, and we run, we ask them to to do a questionnaire, you know, a jerkitude questionnaire, and then they score over sixty five on the jerky, jerkiness questionnaire, and then we say, okay, you have extreme jerk disorder. It doesn't, you know, <laughs> like it, it doesn't. It's not that if they'd scored sixty four, have been very different. You know, that, that it is. It is just. Um, it is right. we draw a, a, a bell curve, a normal distribution, and we say, at past this point on this distribution, you have personality disorder, and it's somewhat arbitrary and. Uh, with things like BPD and autism and ADHD and all these things, it is very much, it is us just saying, okay, well, at this point, past this point, you it becomes difficult for you to manage in society, so we'll call it well, a disorder. Right. And is it also true that past this point, it becomes difficult to treat? Like, because, I mean, take narcissism, for example. Like, this is a term that's thrown around all the time. People can be narcissistic, but that's not the same as having NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, right? So, like, I want—I don't know if this is something you can answer, but like, how many people are just narcissists? Is there a difference if if you are a narcissist? I mean, this is semantic. Is hmm. that different from having NPD, or like, if you how how many people are just narcissistic versus actually having narcissistic well, personality a, a, disorder? Well, yeah, that's. I mean, that's a, this is a definition of words issue, isn't it? Like the um, as like you say, it's semantic. I mean, I I know lots of people who think very highly of themselves or are worried particularly or you know then um or have you know particularly like particularly interested in what people think of them and that sort of thing is that you might in colloquial terms say he's a bit narcissistic that guy um but then there is a much stricter 
um, and probably more extreme definition, you know, um, quote in the DSM-4 or DSM-5, whatever we're on now, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, I can't remember, you know, um, uh, the, you know, the actual sort of the handbook of what we call a mental health issue. Um, and uh, that is only tangentially related to the way we use the colloquial term. I mean, you know, you might say I'm feeling a bit depressed today because Liverpool lost or whatever, you know, um, but uh, they're in there. But that is not the same as saying I have clinical depression. Yeah. So if, you know, if we, we if we talk about someone saying they're depressed because they're, you know, because local sports team lost that weekend, that is, it sounds like we're talking about something similar to when we use the word depression to mean this mental health thing. And there probably are aspects that are similar, but then, you know, it is the colloquial term is so much wider and so much more um, applicable to different things in life that it's not, it's not always obvious that we could, that we're using them in directly comparable ways. Uh, although you'd hope that there is some otherwise, you know, why the hell are we using the word narcissism or depression to mean sadness? And, uh, so, and there must be some, you'd hope there is some connection. Otherwise it's just a really badly chosen word. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't, so I think this is my extremely long winded way of saying, I don't think I can reasonably make <laughs> put, 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 put numbers on, you know, what the, the difference between people who think are a bit narcissistic versus people yeah. who suffer from narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I want to go back to the Chimamanda example for, a second here because it seems like there is a connection maybe between people who are activists, especially in this kind of social justice sphere right now, and um, a sense of catastrophe. And this is going to fold into what you you write about in your in your new book. But you know, in this case, the person who was the the fan and then the uh, the the number one hater of of Chimamanda. This was a case where this person was worried about her opinion about trans people and the safety of trans people. And this came from an idea that I, this comes from an idea that trans people are in danger all the time, that they are literally being murdered. Her word, that Chimamanda's words had done literal violence. And that is a particular pathology. I don't know if I'm misusing that word maybe that's too strong of a word but there does seem to be in the in the world of people who are advocating for social justice causes on social media a sense that the world is much much worse than it is and therefore action must be taken attention must be paid um missteps must be called out and i wonder if you have thoughts about that kind of mental process i do you know you've, you've got a fixed amount of activism right let's say say you are extremely worried about um i don't know let's pick something non uh, relatively non-fighty uh, and say i don't know you're, you're really worried about road safety yeah um okay and you're incredibly like passionate about it and you um and you dedicate you build a movement to dedicating uh, the, your, the fight against road uh, about for road safety and uh you build an organization that is dedicated to fighting road safety and, and also to fighting for road safety rather. And, um, over the years, the, uh, the safety on the roads goes up and road deaths go down. Now, in theory, that should mean that your organization becomes less relevant and important. And that is a good thing, right? You, you, you should be, you should slowly wind down your organization because it's yes. done its job. Mission right? accomplished. Exactly. Now we can, we can now employ half as many people in this charity because, you know, good news guys, you're all fired. Um, and uh, that would be the rational and logical. Obviously, that's not what happens. What happens is that the you know the the focus remains just as strongly on the half the half as many road deaths. You know, and and people who care very deeply, they're still you know the the pressure group will still be saying, you know, it's it is tragic that seven people die this year's on this year on Britain's motorways or whatever. You know, and and we have to make a big deal out of it because because the well, partly because the the you know just for the very really straightforward reason that the um, organisations uh, funding the organisations raise on debt, the whole the whole you know its prestige relies on this problem being a major social problem. And if it becomes not a major social problem, then its funding dries up, its prestige disappears, it becomes useless. It's it, you know, and that is you know that that's in a re- we look at that in a really institutionalised way. You know, the, the, it's an actual organization that is set up to fight these things and that's really the mechanism is really obvious 
But if we are, um, if we look at it and just as an individual person who has dedicated their life to fighting whatever road safety for road safety, then, and then we say, then you say, okay, well, actually, no, you, it's fine. You've, there's not, road safety isn't such a problem anymore. The cars are really safe these days. We, we, you should start, you should give up and start worrying about lifeboats or something. I don't know. Um, then that person will feel like a lot of their, 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 their the, the cause has been removed for them from them you know that this so and you know i, I hope that the sort of the the parallel to more uh socially controversial issues is pretty obvious but if you're someone yes who, i think we can imagine what they are yeah yes. exactly but if you're if you're if you're caring very very deeply about racism or violence or whatever then and those problems mercifully get better then it is very hard to say it is it's just it, it becomes incredibly difficult to say I, okay, my, well, you wouldn't ever say my work here is done, but my work here is partly done. You know, my work here, we, we do not have to worry quite so much about racism as we did in the 1960s or whatever, because, um, there is just less of it, you know, there's less of it around. We, well, and, the and, material but, facts would show that there, in, improvement has happened change has occurred yeah so So there's a resistance to that is it is it like people are addicted to the emergency in a way well i mean uh i i i I, you know that's a sort of uh, further you know that that is there's there's there are mental health issues like catastrophizing which is trying to find the very worst of the in in the world and make you know very worst worst interpretation for anything and make it and then there's also i mean to bring this back to social media and things like or and it's not just social media, but media in general. I mean, for instance, I'll, I'll go for again a slightly less immediate. Well, I'll, uh, there's, there's, no, there's, don't just 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 go for it. Just yeah, throw okay. it down. You don't so, you don't have to do that. You don't have to sanitize your examples. No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't going to sanitize things. Like, I, I, my my sanitized example is going to be a mass shooting, which actually, on reflection, is not okay. that sanitized. Fantastic. Um, yeah. So uh, I remember in. Not that long ago, a couple of years ago, there was a gigantic, an awful, awful mass shooting in New Zealand. Um, uh, yes, in Christchurch. No, yes, exactly. It was, and it was just horrifying. But it did make me think that there will never be a time when we feel like gun violence or general, uh, or you know, people feel safe. Because here I am. I mean, literally as far away from New Zealand as it is possible to be and remaining on and while remaining on land, you know, uh, there, there are places in the middle of the sea near uh, New Zealand that are more directly opposite uh, Britain, but not that much more, but you know, it's, we're at, we are tens of we are something like 14,000 miles away. I forget the exact number. And that shooting has made huge headline news over here. It was all over the media. It was all over. And, and actually, you know, in terms of, the you know how how relevant this is to my life it, it, it not very you know it's, it's tragic but it's nothing to do with us over here and there are seven billion people in the world the odds of one of them doing something completely dreadful on any given day is extremely high because you know one per one a one in seven billion chance is you know it doesn't take much to, when you've got seven billion chances to have for, for something to happen so there will always be enough awful news enough videos and foot uh, and photos and just horrible stories to fill social media to fill 24-hour news from around the world and so you'll never end up having this sort of feeling of all right okay so we've sort of solved it haven't we you know um and that is on the one hand that is i guess it's good that people keep fighting to improve stuff but also if you want to if you if if we are trying to say you know actually we get a get a, a reasonable idea of how the progress we are making on social problems whatever they are then the way to look at it is you know actual numbers has the incidence of x gone down is violence is there less violence is there less you know um racially motivated attacks or hate crimes or sex you know all these things are they going down in the aggregate whereas the that is not how social media or indeed old school media the news 24 hour rolling news ever shows things because that will be um uh, you know, it only takes one incident worldwide to show, to fill to fill news uh, and fill social media around the world. So this this sort of context, disp- oh, what is it? Context collapse, something like that. And anyway, this 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 mechanism of everyone's um, fight, of fighting ever more fiercely over smaller and smaller problems 
is fed by this ability to get to find examples of these problems around the world and feed them straight into your brain via 24-hour rolling news or social media. And so the so these two these two things feed back and forth on each other. You will never feel safe because it will always be possible to find something bad somewhere in the world and put that with sirens blaring and you know banner headlines on your screen in a few minutes after it happens. Right. And you talk about this in your new book, How to Read Numbers, a guide to statistics in the news and knowing when to trust them. You're the co-author of this book with someone who shares your last name. My cousin, my cousin David. Coincidence. Okay. Yeah, no, it's not a coincidence there. Yeah, that would be statistically improbable, would it not? Exactly, that would be. Chivers is not a massively common surname. Um, But yeah, he's my my cousin David. He's a, he's a, uh, well, I'll get this right, David. He is an associate professor of of, um, economics at Durham University. Um, So yes. So yeah, I think this is such an important thing to talk about, especially now, obviously, because um, everyone has become an armchair epidemiologist around COVID, um, and people are having all sorts of opinions about things like whether vaccines are safe, um, and then just sort of more broadly, we're having, especially in the U.S., all sorts of discussions around race, um, the idea that it's incredibly dangerous if you are a person of color. Um, to interact with the police, to walk down the street. I think that, um, you know, for instance, the statistics around police shootings of unarmed black men are um, wildly uh, misperceived by a lot of people. I think probably most people imagine that they're at least tenfold uh, what they really are. Not that uh, not that we should celebrate what they are. Obviously, we have to to work on it, to be sure. Um, but yeah, let's talk about um, a, a couple of examples. I mean, you you talk about, for instance, the idea that the AstraZeneca vaccine is dangerous because at least 37 people have um, had potentially life-threatening blood clots. So um, what's actually going on here uh, vis-a-vis the 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 statistics, the actual numbers versus our perception of them. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, I should say, you know, the, um, it is not, I think it probably is true now that, that there is some link between um, uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine and some plot, some of these rare clotting disorders, but it, well, the, the, what is, what was really annoying about the reporting of it at the time um, was if you say, you know, 37, 37 people have, been diagnosed with blood clots after taking the AstraZeneca vaccine. What they didn't, what no one seemed to be talking about at the time, and I got grumpy about in the piece for Unheard, was like, okay, how many blood clots would we expect given that we have? I, 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 I could bring the piece up in front of me, but the, the, there were some number of millions of people had been vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine at that time. Uh, I think tens of million, you know, something in the fifteen million sort of uh, uh, figure around the UK and Europe. And like, if you just take 15 million people and don't give them anything at all and watch them for six weeks, some number of them will have blood clots. People have blood clots sometimes. Um, and I did, I, what I wanted to know was what's the background rate? This is, then this is the thing in the, in the, in the book. One of the really key things is like the, one of the questions we want people to ask is, is that a big number? You know, like it, someone tells right. you that 75 people with blue hair have, Died of leprosy this year. I don't know. And you're like, well, I don't, like, <laughs> well, that's, so people with blue hair are are uh, most likely to troll people on Twitter. Though, well, exactly. Uh, there is that. Be yes. clear about that. <laughs> um, so there. So like, it, I like uh, that sounds bad, but I don't know how many people with blue hair there are. I don't know how what the background rate of leprosy in the population is. You know, so like. Is, is are, are you claiming that there is some uh, you know some um, mechanism that drive you know that driving a greater um, incidence of leprosy among people with blue hair? And if you are, well, we'll need to see the background rate. We'll need to see the you know, and then and then you know then you need to ask: Is it causal? Is there some other thing? You know, so so that's the sort of the book. The the, the book is very much about look. These are how numbers are made. These, you know, when when you read a number in the news, this is how it gets to you. It's you know through, from sur- surveys or scientific papers or uh, polls and this sort of stuff. This is how numbers can go wrong. Like they might the, the sample might be small or the sample might be skewed or biased. You know, people quoting Twitter polls um, for support for their thing as though they are you know balanced and and weighted to represent the population and that sort of thing. And then you know these ideas like. Um, 
numbers in context. Like if so, you know, is, is, you know, when you were at high school, you probably learned about the denominator of a number in a fraction. You know, there's a numerator and denominator. The number at the bottom is the denominator. So if you say um, 17 people have died of whatever, 17 people out of how many? At 17 out of, 50, you know, out of a population of 300 million in the US or 70 million in the UK, is is it a big number? How do we how do we know it's a big number? What what more information do we need? And so it is, the the idea of the book is to try and give people the tools to just sort of ask this sort of question, you know, like they read, they read a number like, um, uh, red wine raises you know, a glass of red wine a week raises your risk of, uh, heart disease by 7%. What does that mean? Like, uh, what was my, what I thought my, it lowered. Wait uh, well, a second. Has it changed? It changes. Has it, has that's, it this, <laughs> this is exactly it. You, if, if you, uh, the, one of the chapters in the book, we, I just went on Google. And a report a Google new study says, and then red wine and site colon dailymail.com, dailymail.co.uk. And I found dozens, dozens and dozens of news articles saying red wine causes heart disease, prevents heart disease, causes cancer, prevents heart cancer. <laughs> and, you know, it'd be a new one each week. And if you were going to this naively, you would say, oh, well, these scientists obviously don't know what they're talking about. It changes every week. But this is one of the really key things in our book is like, well, no, that's not how science works. Science is a body of evidence that accumulates over time, right? And you get a new, and a new study comes in, you attach that to the pile of evidence you've already got and say, well, okay, so before we thought that um, uh, drinking three glasses of wine raised your risk, raised your risk of various diseases by, uh, you know, 0.1% over the baseline or whatever. And then, and then, but now we see maybe it's 0.15%. And so we'll, we'll, we'll adjust our, uh, our, our interpretation and we'll raise the, you know, raise our estimate of risk very slightly. Uh, you know, and it's, it's one data point among thousands. Whereas if you just take the latest study and ignore all the ones before, it's like you're throwing away decades of, of, um, sort of accumulated public health research to say, uh, well, this, you know, obviously that previous study said that, but we forget about that. Ignore that. We'll now, now we'll listen to this new one. And that is not how it works. And that is, gives this impression of, um, uh, the, the idea that, you know, the alcohol is protective one week and bad for and uh, murderous for the week after in answer to your earlier question about whether it protects or not, there's this real, where, where there is a bit of debate is whether there's this thing called a J shaped curve, which is, that your risk of um, uh, various diseases, heart disease, cancer, whatever, goes down very slightly if you drink moderately, so like a, cu- a couple of glasses of wine or a couple of beers a week, and then starts to go back up again as you drink more. Now, there's a lot of argument over that because people who don't drink at all aren't really they're, – they're, they're unusual, right? If you, if you don't drink well, at all – Well, and this is causation versus correlation, exactly, right? Exactly, yes. So, so maybe the people who drink a little bit are, health, uh, are healthier because people who don't drink at all have got some reason for not drinking at all. Like they are unhealthy in other ways. They've got you know, some pre-existing uh, liver problem or something like that. You know? um, and that is exactly – so, so I, I, I always thought the J-shaped curve was real. I'm told by a couple of statisticians recently that probably the best bet is that it's not real and it's steadily increasing risk from your first drink – that said, it is worth putting into context what, how small the risk is. I'm, I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but it's something like 900 people out of every 100,000 would get a, um, and I can't, remember, oh, I can't remember if this is per year or, per, or in a lifetime, but I suspect it's per year. 900 people per year would get some, what we would call a, a, um, an uh, alcohol-related disorder, so something like heart disease, uh, liver failure, liver disease, any, any year, every year, anyway, whether they drank or not. And if you drink right. two drinks, if you drink two drinks a day, um, which is not a stupid amount to drink, then that that risk goes up to like nine hundred and thirty out of uh, out of one hundred thousand. So it's you know this is that is not a nothing increasing risk, but it is worth being aware. You know, it's, it, that's the sort of thing we're talking about. Talk about we we really ask people to talk in terms of absolute risk, not just relative. It doesn't tell you very much to say your risk goes up by three percent. That sounds quite bad. What you need to know is what was your risk before and how much right. has it gone up and how much has it changed in context. So so that's what we're really calling for is just people to look know how to interrogate the numbers and also to for we we put a bit on the end of the book called the statistical style guide, which is trying to encourage journalists to do a better job of communicating them. So not to just give relative risks. It sounds really bad if you say your risk, like there was one, you know, your, your risk of, if you have a child over the age of 50 as a man, then your risk of that child having seizures goes up by 20%. And that sounds really bad, but it's go, the actual, it's actually, it goes up from like 18 out of every hundred thousand to 22 out of every hundred thousand or something like that. You know, that, that is, 
it is not a, that big a deal. You know, that, that is, it is, um, it is when, when you give people the absolute risk, they can make these decisions better. And it's about encouraging, giving, encourage, encouraging readers to know how to interrogate the numbers and giving, encouraging journalists to give people the ways to navigate the world better with the numbers. Yeah, so speaking of journalists doing a better job, uh, there was a, a story from early June. This was in the New York Times. Okay, this is the headline. This is a COVID story. Teens are rarely hospitalized with COVID, but cases can be severe. Okay, here's the subhead. Adolescents were hospitalized with COVID three times as often as with flu, researchers reported. N- nearly one third wound up in ICUs. Okay, so basically this is one of these, um, the, uh, you know, COVID is getting under control, but not totally under control. So you need to, um, you need to stay vigilant. This is frustrating because it's making it sound like, um, there's a whole lot of children ending up in, in hospitals, but the number getting sick in the first place is low enough that it's, it's really negligible. I guess what I'm saying is why do they keep, why do they keep reporting this kind of story? And are they just counting on us to feel alarmed without actually looking into the numbers? Yeah. So, okay. So on the, on the one hand, this is exactly what I'm talking about, about absolute versus relative risk. I mean, if, if someone says the risk of a, of adolescents being hospitalized is three times as bad as flu, that sounds bad. But I mean, if the risk of an adolescent getting hospitalized is one in a million with flu and three in a million with COVID, then you probably don't care a great deal. That's the sort right. of that's the sort of use of you know I, I would it's really important to give people the absolute numbers so that they can make decisions about their own, what risk they're comfortable with themselves. I think okay, that's really key. and actually here I can read you this part: about sixteen thousand five hundred children have been hospitalized for COVID nineteen since the pandemic began, and at least three hundred and twenty two have died, making it one of the leading causes of deaths among children. Okay, and then they have somebody quoted: "It sounds like it's not a lot of deaths." especially compared with 600,000 dead in the United States. But it should still be horrifying that 300 to 600 kids are, are dying because of something that is preventable. Yeah, I mean, okay. this is the thing. Like, uh, this is, uh, uh, it, it, it is, of course, it sounds so weak to say it is, of course, tragic, but it, and it actually is tragic, right? <laughs> These are dead children and it is awful. But the, I, I, there's, a, there's a problem I have of, with people saying even one death is too many. Oh, that's just not true. You know, the, right. the, 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 the people people do one death would be pretty good. Yes, actually, exactly. Yeah, right? exactly. And um, and I mean, those numbers again they sound they sound really bad, but I I don't. And you know, it's people that that's more that's that's the uh, a big killer of of young people. That is that is true. But then that's that's because mercifully, very few young people die. That that it's really safe time to be a child or a young adult you know a young person because most of us live through our childhood and that, you know, so these are the this is the sort of thing it, it is very easy to say um to pick these numbers out of contest like sixteen thousand. but okay but how, how many actual actually how many children of this age are there in the u.s i assume millions you know how many of them did contract covid what is what is the absolute risk is instead as opposed to relative is really important to us you asked a moment ago what are they trying to do and like I, 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 I should defend journalism. I, I like journalists and think they are broadly speaking a, you know, they, they view what they do as a public service and they are trying to um, inform people, not all of us, but, you know, but I think broadly speaking, people think that people, journalists think that what they're doing is public service and they're trying their best to inform the public. That said, it is also a business which, and it's an, a, a, you know, it's an attention based business, right? You can, you um make you make money for your organization by getting eyeballs or clicks or listeners or you know viewers whatever um and it is just the case that a more dramatic headline and a more dramatic story will get more attention than uh you know if if i if if i was to write a story every day Saying no one died in plane crashes today, but forty thousand people died in the UK of or forty, you know, forty thousand people died of diabetes. Whatever, I don't, I, I mm-hmm. that's definitely not. Or true in car really crashes. Yet. I well, mean, exactly, the idea yeah. that p- people are afraid of flying but not of driving. Exactly, yeah. and, and if we just if we if we if, if our headline on the front of the paper every day was this is the death toll from from but whereas of course you, you the the picture of a plane crash is better pictures and it's you know and they, they happen just about often enough to get in, to keep it interesting. There was a really interesting. Um, 
now I wish I could remember. It was Tim Harford, who's a journalist and economist in the UK, was mentioned it, and I think he got the idea from Max Rosa of um, Our World in Data, which is two two very brilliant and important people who I think everyone should know more about. But they, um, he said, like, imagine if there was a, a a newspaper that instead of printing every day, it printed every fifty years or a hundred years. What would the story? You know, if there was a, if there was if you had one newspaper to fill today to sum up all the, the big stories of the last hundred years, what would they be? I mean, probably your front page headline would be life expectancy doubles, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but because most of the short term thing, short term stories are not necessarily they're like, like, you know, the, the, the big events in the world are broadly speaking, um, you know, the, the long term trends are, 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 are things improving, people's lives getting better, they're being less violent, they are slow and they take ages. But the, the things the things that fill a newspaper each day or the things that fill a news bulletin each day are the things that happened that day. And they are rarely, you know, um, life expectancy went up by seven days, you know, by seven days this week or so, well, probably seven days this week, went up by you know, six hours yesterday. That's not how it works. So the, you, you end up, this, there were this many people murdered, this many people died of these awful things. And so there's a sort of, in, there's a there's a systematic tendency to fill newspapers and news, and news sites up with tragic short-term events rather than long-term, uh, generally cheering stories, I think. Yes, yeah. So did your, uh, was the impetus for this book, the kind of messaging that was coming out of the beginning of the pandemic. What was the timing uh, yeah. with regard to yeah. so this and COVID? Yeah, I, 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 I tried. Dave and I have tried to remember exactly what it was that we were basically we're grumbling in our Twitter DMs to each other, like, "Oh God, they've done it again! It's another story with no, no just quoting relative risk and no absolute risk, or giving no denominator." Or, oh God, they've done it. you know, and neither of us can remember what the actual story was. But we, um, it was it was a bit pre-COVID. It was sort of January, I think, or February last year, uh, probably January actually, and we, um, uh, so COVID was on the horizon, and we knew it was coming. Or knew, or knew that it was going likely. There was a possibility. Certainly, was everyone was aware of it. But no, it, it wasn't the big thing. We um, we just had got this sort of. Um, we, we'd got this sort of. Oh God, someone should write a book picking out all these about the ways that numbers go wrong in the news, and then realised that you know I'm a journalist with some facility with numbers, and he's an economist, and we're actually quite well placed to do it ourselves. So we just pitched the pitched the book to um. So what kinds of stories were bothering you at that time? Was there something uh, in particular you were grousing about? So um. Uh, there's different things every week. I mean, the one, one thing that I, that I, um, probably about that time, maybe a little, maybe late, maybe last, sort of late last year, actually, there was one thing that really got on my wick was, um, a, uh, a story about suicides in the UK. Um, and that was, uh, it was a front page story in a Sunday newspaper and it was saying, um, there's an epidemic of suicide. Um, uh, and, uh, what it had done, and this really made me annoyed, was it said you know, since 2010, suicides among young girls, I think it was, sort of 14, 14, 14 to 18 year olds or something like that, have got, have, um, uh, 15 to 19 year olds, that was it, 15 to 19 year olds in general, has gone up, um, from by 60%, nearly doubled, it said. Yeah, and, uh, and that sounds really bad. We've said, you know, suicides have nearly doubled. Um, it had gone up from three in, uh, but it was so, what they'd done was, and this really annoyed me, was they'd done exactly what climate change skeptics do when they say there's been no warming since 1998. No, you know, 1998 was the hottest year on record. So if you then have a wobbly line that's going up, it might not reach that level again for a few years. For a few years, but it is still going up. You've cherry picked a start point for your data data series, and then said, and then said, look, it hasn't got that high again. But actually, if you wait a few years, it will. It's the, the, this, the trend is still going up. Pick any other year than 1998; the trend is obvious, right? Um, and this is exactly what happened with the Sunday Times one. There was um, a uh, 2010 happened to be the year with the lowest suicides among that age group on record. There was there were so you could pick literally any other year. And say, look, it's changed. For, you know, it's, it's gone up since then. Or, or, or you could, you know, so say, say you, um, say you wanted to tell the opposite story. You could start in, you know, 1997 when late New Labour came to power and say, look, suicides, suicides gone down. Must be all New Labour's doing. You know, there, there was, it was entirely about cherry picking your starting point. And the other thing it was was that the, the suicide rate at, in that age group is mercifully amazingly low the 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 it has almost doubled is it's gone up from just over three per hundred thousand to about five in every hundred thousand you know this is again 
obviously tragic, but it is such a small number that a, a few uh, uh, small variations can make your data look massively jumpy and massive like there's huge changes and then you say it has doubled where actually it's gone up from like nine to 18 or something you know and that that again is tragic but is so so it was things like that and i just oh come on this is you can do better than this and you know and also you notice that they were focusing on just that subset that age group rather than doing the if you look at the whole broad sweep, then the, the, there's been a steady decline among all age groups, and you know, it's obviously some some ages go up. So if you look at the, all, the whole of the data rather than cherry picking a subset of it, then it t- tells a totally different story. So it's things like that. It was that was that was a, a one that has, it really got on my nerves. Um, another one was about the uh, epidemic of loneliness, um, which you know people saying things like there was you know loneliness is as bad for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, which is just as far as I can tell flat false right it's completely what if you smoke while you're alone like, <laughs> well, I think, exactly. uh, again what, what what could be better yeah exactly and though and and so and that was again a similar thing people saying oh loneliness is we've got this epidemic loneliness no well but, but no one's quoting any evidence that it's actually gone up you know there are people saying lots of look all the evidence with all the statistics quoted were saying like lots of people are lonely well yes okay but an epidemic of loneliness implies that it's got worse and I couldn't find any evidence that it had, and no one seems to be quoting any. So it was, it was stuff like that. It's just, oh, come on, you can, you can, you can do better than this. You can do better than this. And it's, and it's people trying to do good by saying, look at this, call, calling attention to some social problem. But I always feel like if it's a real social problem, you can call attention to it in a proportional way. And if it's really bad, then it will be the proportional attention will be significant. You know. Anyway, I'm grumbling now. Yeah, it's. I've noticed the way the word epidemic. It now sort of also includes just things that we've started noticing, right? It's not that it's increasing. It's just that we've identified it. Yes. You know, and, and I wonder just kind of, you know, getting back to the, the initial subject, people being so anxious and sort of, um, looking at the world in such a way that is, is sort of inherently traumatizing. I mean, you know, you talk about this this kind of mental illness phenomenon on social media. It it really, I think, a lot of it comes about because people have decided that the world is traumatic and that they are going to be traumatized by life. And I think that it it's because they are perceiving danger where it is it is not, and because of this kind of statistical phenomenon that you've isolated. Yeah, I mean, I think there is. Another piece I wrote, which I was another of the ones that I was extremely nervous about, followed. There was this awful murder of a woman in London, and obviously, loads of my friends are London-based women, especially journalists, and they were they found it so traumatic. It was personally traumatizing, Um, and that was a real eye opener for me in terms of like I, I think the sort of the sort of what we were talking about before the mechanisms around social media and about around around life in general make it impossible for people and i think especially women or or especially people who are anxious to feel safe because there is always going to be enough bad news to fill the news and it will you know and that will always be pushed in front and and in and that that i think makes people who are prone to anxiety prone to nervousness or catastrophizing um always feel like will always have enough to make them feel like they're under threat and you know and and i think you know there's other you know the, the other things i talked about in that piece where like if you are a woman it's not just that you're worried about being murdered it's worried about you know pe- pe- your experience walking down the street sometimes might be that there are men who are making you making you feel uncomfortable and that will be and that, that doesn't doesn't take very many men out of a population of millions to be slightly un- behave in slightly uncomfortable ways for you to get an experience all the time that it, you know, or a few times a year that makes you feel really uncomfortable and i think that is why those these sort of mechanisms are why that we will never or at least not in the foreseeable future ever reach a time when we think okay like now people are safe and now people are okay and i think that it, we do have to as a society accept that Though we we were just never going to reach that point where everyone feels safe, I, don't, I think, and, and that is, I, I I don't know how you go about dealing with that, you know, psychologically, how you say, okay, fair enough, that is, uh, we we will all feel unsafe then, that you know, and and because of the things we talked about elsewhere, the sort of in in this in this podcast, we've talked about the um the tendency for the loudest and most. Uh, 
catastrophizing voices to be amplified the most. And we've talked about people being incentivized to make, you know, for their particular problem area that they worry about to carry on making noise about that problem area, even though it is objectively speaking getting better. You reach this point where eventually it becomes really hard to, um, uh, to, to, for, to, to make objective, you know, to objectively say, well, okay, yes, they, obviously things are bad in certain ways, but we can, we can say that life has got better for loads of people. And, you know, the well, world yeah, is... Well, yeah, it just, hmm. it, it makes it hard to cope, right? I mean, hmm. it, it seems like if we, if we can recognize that you're never going to be totally safe, that in and of itself might make us feel safer. Like, you know, this, like, just say, this is, this is the true, this is really the, the level of harm that we face and let's just move on there's this kind of this kind of the the abstraction of of danger i think makes people feel even worse yeah i I think there's an element you know i think you have to sort of like there is there is an element of 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 being willing to say yes i think this is okay this is this is the level of danger we are in we or or even just like these you know to to give realistic assessments with preferably with numbers obviously i would say that but but um like the the, this is your risk of x you know your risk of how it compares to your risk of y right your risk of being dying in a terror attack by terrorists is phenomenally phenomenally minor and that uh, yet we are much more scared of that than we are of dying of diabetes you know but which is tens of thousands of times more likely and i think uh, i i as a nerd and a you know, as someone who thinks in these terms, thinks the way the way to help people understand it is to give them real risks in real absolute terms. So you say, look, your your, your risk is about ten out of every hundred thousand will have this bad thing, whereas you you know seventy five out of every hundred thousand will have this bad thing. And the, the, these are the numbers that you need to navigate the world. And I I think the use of number, you know, reading numbers, how to read numbers, available in all good bookshops, at least in the UK. Um, the, the, um, this is the sort of thing that you need to, um, to to make realistic assessments of your risk. And I think there needs to, you know, for some people, it is hard to separate the sort of a feeling of fear um, from actual the, the sort of realistic assessments of risk. And I, But I think it would be really helpful if people, and especially journalists, were better at doing that so we can make better, better attempts to navigate the real world of risk. Well, uh, Tom, thank you so much for for pointing all of this out. I feel like we could we could go on a lot longer, but um, I know your I know your time is is limited. Um, I want to thank you again for writing the piece about the, the Twitter trolls. Um, not least of all because it led me to to your other work. So um, thank you so much, and uh, good luck with everything. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. That was my interview with science writer Tom Chivers. Tom is science editor at Unheard and also the co-author with David Chivers of How to Read Numbers, a guide to statistics in the news and knowing when to trust them. He is also the two-time winner of the Royal Statistical Society's Statistical Excellence in Journalism Award. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you like this show, please consider supporting it on Patreon at patreon.com slash the unspeakable and or leaving a rating or review, positive please, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking to buy official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise, you can find it in the Nuance store of the podcast website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. Also, unrelatedly, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, up until the pandemic, I periodically taught a weekend-long private workshop in personal essay and memoir out of my home in New York City. I'm happy to say I'm bringing the class back now and will be holding its first post-lockdown session the weekend of September 25th, 26th. This is an admission by application kind of thing and space is limited, but if you're interested, you can visit daummasterclass.com for details. Uh, Again, this venture is unrelated to the podcast, but since I do work with people on how to write with honesty and speak the unspeakable, I thought it might interest a few listeners out there. Anyway, I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club.
Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW.